0: Welcome to New Life with Adam Camp. This podcast is a ministry of Rosemont Baptist Church in LaGrange, Georgia. Please visit us on the web at rosemontchurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. For the opportunity to open the truth of your word, Lord, I pray that as we study this morning and read, Lord, that you would reveal to us truth and that that truth, Father, could be applied to our lives. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, we'd be transformed more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in His name that we pray. Amen. I want to begin this morning with a text from Matthew chapter 16. And and of course, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, so if you have your Bibles and want to turn with me, you can. You don't have to, though. I just want to read this portion of Scripture to you, Matthew chapter 16. Let me paint the picture before I read it. Jesus' ministry has begun... Large crowds of followers have surrounded him. He's been healing people. He's been causing the blind to see, the lame to walk. He's been feeding people. He's been doing some pretty incredible miracles in the midst of all these crowds that have been following him. And then we read in Matthew chapter 16 verse 21, From that time on, so there's this sense here now that something's about to change. Jesus hasn't been saying certain things, but as the Bible says in verse 21, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Now you can imagine the response of his followers They've only seen the good side, right? They've seen the miracles. They've seen the food. They've seen all the large groups of people that have surrounded him. And so far, it's been one big party, right? It's been one big exciting moment and incredible things have happened. And all of a sudden, Jesus says, I want you to understand something. It's not really about that anymore. Because I'm going to go to Jerusalem. And I'm going to allow them to arrest me and to torture me, and to beat me, and to crucify me on a cross. And then three days later, I'm going to rise again. You can imagine the response. And so we see in verse 22, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Just imagine rebuking Jesus. <laughs> never, Lord. Never. This will never happen And I can just see how emphatic Peter must have been. And Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. And then Jesus said to his disciples, and by the way, that includes us, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will find it. It's at this point in the ministry of Jesus Christ that his disciples and his followers recognize that in order to follow after Jesus Christ, he requires Something more. And so I want to think for a little while this morning about exactly what Jesus requires. If you already have your Bible open, or if you don't, I want you to flip back now to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. This is week three in what we're calling our upside down sermon series. It's a study of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. And the reason we're calling it upside down is because everything that Christ commands us to do, everything that Christ commands us to be in these three chapters is opposite of what the world would say. It's upside down of how the, Lord, of how the world would call us to live. And so Jesus says, I want you to be different. I want you to stand out. I want you to be upside down. Now, one of the things we're challenging you to do every week as a family is, is to spend some time talking through this idea with your children. We've even created for you each week a little family devotion sheet. We have them at the tables. You can pick one up, take it home with you. It's very simple. It's got the scripture. It's got some things you can do, some fun activities. We did it with our kids last week and had a blast. I want to encourage you parents to do that. One of the things we're trying to do through this process is to memorize the Beatitudes. So I hope you're taking that very seriously with your children. I hope you're taking the opportunity to talk to them about being different about living upside down, about living this missional life in the world, because there is no greater place that we can train than in the home, right? If we can train those children in the way they should go, the Bible says they're not going to depart from it. And one day, that'll pay great dividends for the kingdom of heaven. And so we started a couple of weeks ago in Matthew chapter 5, studying the Beatitudes, and... I thought, beginning last week, as I was starting, or actually two weeks ago, the Beatitudes, I kind of had in mind that I would preach through all the Beatitudes in one Sunday, and as I began to study through them, I began to recognize that's not possible. I'm going to have to break it into at least two Sundays. And so last week, we started with the first four Beatitudes, verses 3 through 6. And let me just review before we kind of get into our text this morning. Jesus reminds us in these Beatitudes that we are to be, first of all, poor in spirit. And the person that's poor in spirit acknowledges that they need God for everything. One writer said, a person that's poor in spirit is a beggar before the Lord. It looks something like this. Lord, I can't do anything on my own. Father, without you, I'm going to fail. I need you in every moment, every aspect of my life. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. Christ also says, blessed are those who mourn. Stacy talked about that just a few minutes ago. Christ understands that mourning is a part of life, and he says those that understand their sinfulness, and those that actually mourn over their sinfulness, those people will be comforted. And then he says, blessed are the meek, this is the person who's very humble, and the person who sees others as better than himself, putting other people ahead of himself. Blessed is the person who hungers and thirsts, blessed is the person who seeks after the things of Christ, blessed is the person that tries to focus their walk more and more on the things of the Lord. And so I want to read through now, beginning again in verse 3, the Beatitudes, and then we're going to focus starting at verse 7 this morning for our text. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 3, Christ says this. Now, he's already gone up on the mountain. He's already sat down, which is a position of authority over the disciples and the followers. The Bible says he begins to teach them, saying in verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And now verse 7, this will begin our focal passage for this morning. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now the way we did this last week, and the way I'm going to do it this week, is to simply walk through these Beatitudes. I think it's very important for us to just to think through what each of these things mean and how we can apply them to our lives. So the first one we're going to consider this morning is verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Now I need to remind you, one of the distinctions we made last week in our understanding of the Beatitudes is that blessings are not necessarily based on external circumstances we have this tendency to look at the world around us and look at all the things we've been given and see all the wonderful things of life and say we are truly blessed. And let's be clear, the Lord can absolutely bless us that way. Sometimes the Lord blesses us in our external circumstances. But a study of the Beatitudes helps us to see clearly that blessings can still come even when external circumstances are bad. So you can still be blessed when everything's crumbling around you. You can still be blessed when you lose all your money. You can still be blessed when you lose your job. You can still be blessed when things aren't going the way you hoped they would go. Because an understanding of blessing, scripturally, is a deep abiding love for Christ and finding joy in Him regardless of your circumstances. And so Christ says you can be blessed, and in verse 7 he says you should be blessed if you are merciful. Now I want to define mercy for a second to make sure there's no confusion. Mercy can be defined simply like this. Kindness or help for someone that's in a desperate situation. That's kind of a simple definition. Mercy is when you see a need, somebody that's struggling, somebody that's in some sort of a desperate position, and you offer on some level your help. Now aren't we thankful That the Lord is exceedingly good at offering mercy in our lives. Aren't you thankful? See, I think about all the times I've struggled with something. I think about all the times that I've been in what I would consider a pretty desperate situation. And I look back and I reflect back and I see the presence of the Lord in my life. And I see how in those moments, even if I didn't understand it right then, looking back on them, I see the mercy of the Lord upon my life. Now you can see all sorts of examples of this all through Scripture. For example, 2 Samuel verse 24, chapter 24, verse 14, David says this. I want you to listen to what David says. I am in great distress. See, there's that desperate situation. I'm in great distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord for his mercy is great, right? When I'm in a desperate situation, I seek the mercy of the Lord. Matthew chapter 9, verse 27, Jesus went on and he saw two blind men who followed him and they called out. Now these are blind men. You can imagine the desperate situation they must find themselves in. I want you to listen to what they ask for. Have mercy on us, son of David. Why? Because Christ offers mercy in desperate situations. Hebrews 4.16, Let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. So we, we can build this solid biblical picture that the Lord gives us mercy and blesses us in difficult situations. But that's not what verse 7 says. Verse 7 is talking to you, and the Lord says to you, you are blessed when you show mercy. That's what it says. Blessed are the merciful. So there's this sense here as a follower of Christ that we need to, on some level, be offering mercy to others. Now, if we define mercy as help or kindness to someone in a desperate situation, we can understand clearly how we can begin to show mercy to people. But I want you to hold on just for a second because it starts very easy and then we're going to delve into something a little more difficult as we try to understand this word a little more. The easy answer is we just help people in need. We've talked about being missional over the last few weeks. One of the tenets of being a missional follower of Christ is that you recognize need and when you recognize need, you plug in. You help that person. You love that person in the name of Jesus Christ. You show mercy when there's a desperate situation, I'll never forget several years ago when Hurricane Katrina came through the Gulf, and there was just utter devastation, and our church had the opportunity to partner with a church in Biloxi, Gulfport, Mississippi, the Biloxi area, and help them to rebuild their facilities, and so we went down probably, I don't know, four or five different times and took some family mission trips. Some of you were part of that, and we had this incredible opportunity to kind of walk around neighborhoods and and knock on doors. And now we weren't knocking on house doors. We were knocking on FEMA trailers. And the person opens the door and we say, you know, we're from this church. And we're just here because we love you. And we're reaching out to you. And we want to help you and pray with you. And it was amazing how people would just begin to pour out their stories. And we would, we would all finish in prayer just crying about what they had lost. Or crying about the mercy of the Lord. We had an opportunity to do some construction and, and some cleanup. And, and to really help out down there with great need. And so we understand that our mercy can sometimes come in the form of building something. Our mercy can come in the form of helping someone. Our mercy can come in the form of a conversation or a kind word or a listening ear. That's kind of the easy answer to what mercy looks like. But let's delve a little bit deeper into this because I think sometimes we skirt right over this. Sure, I can be merciful. I can be nice. Let's move on. But I want you to think through this with me just for a moment. If we're going to say that mercy is when we help someone who's in a desperate situation, we need to say biblically that the most desperate situation anyone can find themselves in is sinfulness, right? That's the most desperate situation. In fact, if you begin to study how the Lord offers mercy, oftentimes you see that he offers mercy as forgiveness of our sins. That's the ultimate form of his mercy. He loved us so much that in the desperate situation of our sinfulness, he sent Christ... To this earth to die on the cross for our sins. That's absolute mercy. So, if the ultimate definition of mercy is that the Lord helps those in their times of sinfulness and ultimately offers them forgiveness, then mercy for us should lead us to forgiving others for their sins and, most specifically, forgiving others when they've sinned against us. Oh, Adam. <laughs> Hold on. I'll go build some houses. I'll rake some leaves. I'll even talk to the guy next to me who's going through that problem at home. I'll show mercy. And I'll help others. And I'll begin to recognize need. And I'll begin to plug in. But when you ask me to forgive somebody else who's sinned against me, now it becomes very difficult for me, doesn't it? I'd rather not think about mercy in that light. But if we're very honest, if we have this mindset, Christ forgave me, then I must forgive others, then you're going to be blessed. Because there are levels of mercy. And when we recognize that someone has sinned against us and has wronged us, and has hurt us, the deepest form of mercy and the most difficult form of mercy is to offer them in the name of Christ forgiveness. Why? Because we're called to be merciful. Now verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. Now let's think about purity just for a few minutes. Purity is this idea of keeping free from any other substance. To be pure means it doesn't contain anything that it shouldn't contain. There's this sense in this verse of purity of heart, this idea of inward purity. And you say, why would Christ focus on the heart? Why is the heart so important? Well, in Old Testament times, especially, and even in the first century, the heart was kind of the seat of everything. It was kind of the seat of emotion. So when they talk about the heart, it was kind of where everything began. And so you see verses that help us understand the heart. For example, Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Mark 7, verse 20. He went on, this is Jesus, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For it's from within, out of a person's heart that evil comes. And he goes on to this list of sexual immorality and theft and murder and adultery. All these evils come from inside and they defile a person. So if we're going to think about being pure in heart, there's this sense that we need to remove the things that separate us from Christ. There's the sense we need to remove the impurities. There's the sense, kind of to use a word that we would think about in our culture, we need to be single-minded, don't we? We don't need all these other things in our heart competing with our focus on Christ. We don't need all these other things in our life competing with our focus on who the Lord has called us to be. Now some of you are fans of the olympics the olympics are coming up the winter olympics here in i think about a week or so it's always interesting to me when the winter olympics come and when the summer olympics come how they kind of focus in on these athletes and we kind of begin to hear their stories and we begin to kind of see what their life is like and it never fails to amaze me how driven these people are now there's a couple things you need to be to be an olympian number one you've got to be born with some incredible ability these people just have natural god-given ability first But the second thing you've got to find is an absolute drive to make that sport the center of everything you do. I can promise you there's not a single Olympian that's never trained for their event. They don't just show up at the Olympics and compete. What you... See, instead, is that they've trained some of them for years and years and years for that very moment. So, their training and their drive for competition drives their schedule, right? Everything is surrounded by that. Everything they do is related to their training, it drives their lifestyle. Every decision they make is based on their training and their competition, it dictates what they eat when they sleep, how early they wake up, everything is about that competition. Everything is about seeking that victory. Everything in their life revolves around that training and that competition. They have a single-minded devotion. And so I ask myself the question, what if I had a single-minded devotion like that for the things of Christ? What if I really was pure in heart? Dietrich Bonhoeffer said those who are pure in heart have surrendered their hearts completely to Jesus that he may reign in them alone. Now that sounds good on paper doesn't it? In fact every person in here is probably thinking I wish I could be single minded. I wish I could be pure in heart. I wish I could live my life for Christ like that. But the truth of the matter is we're double minded aren't we? We have this struggle, this ongoing in our hearts. We want to please the Lord, while at the same time we want to please ourselves. We want to do what the Lord calls us to do, and yet we want to do what we want to do. And we have this struggle sometimes. I'm reminded of Romans chapter 7, where Paul goes through the same exact struggle. Paul says, I do not understand what I do. This is Paul, the Apostle Paul, who wrote the vast majority of the New Testament saying to us, I don't understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. There's this sense of struggle in there. There's this sense of Living for Christ in the world that surrounds us. There's this sense of trying and working and hoping that we can be single-minded. And if we're honest with each other and we try to do it in our own strength, it's this sense that we're going to fail time after time after time. Why? Because we can't do it alone. Instead, what we see is David in Psalm 51, verse 10, where he says to the Lord, Create, this is speaking to the Lord, Create in me a pure heart, O God. And renew a steadfast spirit within me. We can't do it alone, but God can. See, the more we pray and the more we seek the Lord, the more our devotion falls in line with Him. So blessed are those with a pure heart, for they will see God. Now verse 9 as we continue through this process. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Now, this one seems pretty easy to us, right? We're to foster peace. If I see a conflict, if I see two people that are upset about something, as, most, as best as I can in the midst of this conflict, I need to offer peace. I need to try to re- resolve this situation as best as I possibly can. And that's kind of the easy answer, and that's absolutely true. We should foster peace. But here's the question as we think about conflict what if we're the cause of the conflict? See, it's awfully easy for us to notice the world and to notice the problems of the people and to notice how they're not getting along and the issues that they're dealing with. Sometimes it's much more difficult for us to notice that we're part of the problem. That we're actually causing some of the conflict. Now you begin to think about conflict in our lives and you begin to think about the conflict that you're struggling with and here's the thing you need to understand about conflict. Most of the conflict we deal with in our lives... It's based on our own selfishness. See, we don't get what we want on whatever level that looks like in our life, and all of a sudden there's conflict. You say, ah, that's a, I don't know, Adam. Ah, that's pushing it. Well, let me just use the scripture then if I could. James chapter 4. James says, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Question mark. Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, right? You want it, but you don't get it, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and you fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. See, I think if we're honest, a lot of the conflict we have comes from the fact that we're selfish about what we want to do. I'll give you a very simple example. Saturday morning rolls around, and you, husband, I'm talking to the husbands first. My wife's not in here, so I can use this example. She'll be in here at the 11 o'clock service. I may change the example at that point. But Saturday morning rolls around, and husbands, you've got a desire to do whatever you've got. You you want to watch football, or you want to relax, or you want to go in the backyard and throw the ball around, whatever that looks like. Your wife has a different expectation. Her expectation is that you're cleaning the house all day because it's been a long time since it's been cleaned. So we're going to, have to scrub and vacuum and mop and wash and fold, and then 9:30 at night we'll finally wind down and be done. Right? Those are very different expectations. Now here's the problem. As we begin to get into this discussion about what this day is going to look like, I, as the husband, have got two choices. I can either be selfish and say to her, "No, no, no, no honey, <laughs> no, no. you've got it wrong. What today's going to be is Adam laying on the couch all day and you bring me drinks when I'm thirsty. That's what today's going to look like, right?" We know that's not going to happen. That's what today looks like in my brain, at least. <laughs> or I could say, "Honey, I, I know that I kind of wanted to do this and I kind of wanted to relax, but I also know you want to clean the house, and so I'm going to, I'm going to help you clean the house." Right? There's a simple choice there. I can be selfish, and if I'm selfish, guess what's going to happen? There's going to be quarrel. (laughs) If I'm willing to put her needs over my needs, everything goes smoothly. See, when we don't get what we want, we fight. I was in Walmart a couple weeks ago. If you ever want to practice not getting upset when someone does something you don't like, just go to Walmart because people are going to do what you don't like. Doesn't take long. You're going to see something that happens that you just don't like. This is a good time for you to practice. I was in the checkout line. I was in the kind of the the self checkout, you know, and there were probably five or six people in front of me. And the problem was I was in a hurry. Don't ever go to Walmart when you're in a hurry, right? I was in a hurry. I had to be somewhere and I was already late. And I'm in the self checkout line. There are already four or five people. And, you know, if you're like me, I'm counting items in the buggy. One, two, three, four, five. This will take four minutes. This will take a minute. I'm trying to think through my time. And all of a sudden, as I'm minding my own business, this lady with a buggy full of stuff just kind of. Cuts in line, <laughs> two or three people ahead of me. She just kind of starts standing there. Okay, so I'm watching her for a minute. I'm just wondering what's happening. And her husband is there with her. I think it was her husband. And so I'm try- I'm, I'm in my mind. I'm trying to make this a spiritual thing. So I'm sitting there looking at him. I'm thinking. I'm thinking. You're supposed to be the leader of your home. And you're going to let her break in line in front of all these people, right? I'm trying to make it this spiritual thing. I mean, You need to do something about this, man. I'm just thinking, what should happen? I had this conversation right, about how this guy needs to step up and lead and how, how dare she do this. And all of a sudden, the Lord just kind of reminded me, you're just being selfish. <laughs> She's not doing the right thing, that's right. But you know what? Be more concerned about your actions than hers. And if you weren't so selfish, if you weren't late, this wouldn't be a big deal, would it? Because if we're honest with one another, we get upset at things around us because we oftentimes don't get what we want. But Christ tells us clearly in the Beatitudes that if we'll make peace, if we'll be peacemakers with those around us, and more importantly, in our own hearts, then we'll be blessed. Now verse 10, as we need to finish up. Verse 10, 11, and 12 really run together, and so I'm going to read these together as the final one we're going to look at this morning. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Now we think about persecution. And the first thing that comes to our mind is the martyr, the person who has given up his life or has given up her life for the sake of Christ. And it's wise that we think about that because you may not know this or understand this, but there were more martyrs in the last century than all the other centuries combined. It's getting worse. It's not getting better. Now, we live in a bubble in our society, in our world, where we're not asked, at least at this moment, to give our lives for Christ. So what does persecution look like for us? Well, to be persecuted now may mean something as simply as people leave you out because you're a believer. They're not going to include you in something they're doing. It may mean that somebody makes fun of you for something you say to them about Christ. It may mean that you're not able to witness to somebody because they close the door on you. It may mean that people make some sort of a snide comment about your church or about Christ because of who you are in him. But I love what Christ says here as we think about this idea of persecution, we think about how difficult it must be, and we think about what's my reaction going to be when people treat me like that? What's my reaction going to be when I'm persecuted for the Lord? And we see in verse 12, here's what Jesus says, Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. John Stott says it this way, Since all the Beatitudes describe what every Christian disciple is intended to be, we conclude that the condition of being despised and rejected, slandered and persecuted, is as much a normal mark of the Christian discipleship as being pure in heart or merciful. See, there's this sense, if we're a follower of Jesus Christ, we're going to be persecuted. And when it comes, the Bible commands us, as difficult as this may be, to rejoice and be glad for Christ's sake. I want to finish with a quote. I'm winding it down right now from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Very interesting author. He was a pastor and theologian in Nazi Germany in the 1940s. Was eventually killed for his faith. He wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. And in that book he says this, The world dreams of progress of power, and of the future. But the disciples meditate on the end, the last judgment and the coming of the kingdom. To such heights the world cannot rise. And so the disciples are strangers in the world, unwelcome guests and disturbers of the peace. No wonder the world rejects them. You see, we're called to something more. We're called to something different. We're called to love the unlovable. We're called to be meek to those that surround us. We're called to be peacemakers. We're called to be merciful. We're called to offer hope to the needy and Hope to the hopeless. And even if the world rejects us, we're called to find joy in Christ for the glory of God. Now, none of that makes sense in the world we live in. Unless you're willing to live upside down. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for the truth of your word, for the challenge of the Beatitudes, Father, for a deeper understanding of what it means to be blessed. And I pray, Father, as I do every week, this is more than just a, a sermon that they hear. It's more than just words. That It becomes a challenge in their life, Lord, that it becomes a conviction in our spirits to be different, Lord, to, to live outside of the way the world teaches, to be upside down. Father, I pray you would strengthen us. Give us the boldness and the ability, Lord, to love in the midst of struggle. To offer hope to the hopeless, Father. And to even, if it's required of us, be persecuted with joy for your name's sake. You guide us and direct us, Lord, to become the church you've called us to be. For your honor and for your glory. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You can stand. The altar is always open. You can spend a couple of minutes in prayer if you want to. Maybe you need to think about how the Lord has blessed you or how the Lord has called you to be different or how the Lord's calling you to live upside down even now. Maybe you want to accept Christ as your Lord and Savior. Maybe you want to join the church, but we're going to give you the opportunity now as we sing. Thank you for joining today's sermon. We would love to hear how today's message blessed you. Use the contact us link on our website at rosemontchurch.org. God bless.